Now you would consider it a traditional digital role, but at the time, nobody had a job that was digital and social media. Have you ever wondered, how'd she end up with that job? Or maybe wonder what his background is? Welcome to How I Got Here. Hi, I'm Dana Lewis, and this is How I Got Here. I'm your host, Reed Smith. Dana, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you spending a f- yeah. Appreciate you uh, uh, spending a few minutes. Um, we 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 at least met on Twitter and kind of go way back and have some. We've got really two kind of ties in our past. I guess we both um, created a hashtag and created a Twitter chat, and so that was fun for some years. And we'll talk more about that. But most importantly. Um, we both uh, went to school or grew up in the South, I guess. So now you went to the University of Alabama, right? That's correct. Did you grow up in Alabama? Yeah, I'm actually from Huntsville, Alabama originally. Okay, from Huntsville, Alabama. Now that is NASA. <laughs> is that where the space stuff is? Yes, right? Space City. Now, how is that, how is that different than Houston, though? What, what do you do and what, what do you guys do in Huntsville relative to NASA? So there is NASA stuff there. There's lots of biotech and technology overall, but we have the big Space and Rocket Center where a lot of the astronauts come and train as well. Um, we also have Space Camp, nice. which is a big draw. And then the Space and Rocket Center is one of the best museums in the world if you're interested in space technology. So I now live in Nashville, so I'm just kind of up the road, I guess. And uh, so I need to uh, I need to swing down there and take the kids sometime. But did you go to space camp? I did. I was actually in fourth grade when they had a program that every fourth grader in the city got to go to space camp for a week, which was phenomenal. Wow, for an entire week? Yes, it was fantastic. Did that influence uh, ultimately kind of where you are now in, in any way? I don't think so with regards to going to space camp itself, but growing up in Huntsville definitely did because most people don't know that Huntsville has like the highest rate of PhDs per square foot um, in the U.S. So it's a very tech-centered city. So I went to, you know, school in a high school that was very diverse, very academically driven, and most people's parents were actual rocket scientists (laughs) or, you know, doing something science or technology. And so that, you know, kind of filtered down into a lot of us kids going to school and thinking about what we wanted to do. So, you know, despite kind of what perceptions people have of Alabama, Huntsville is very, very tech-centered, tech-driven. And I do think that influenced me. That's hilarious. So you couldn't like say to any of your friends, you know, it's not like it's rocket science or anything like that, because it may have been. Well, well, the the great thing now about what I'm doing when I talk about building algorithms for DIY artificial pancreas is I feel very qualified to say it's not rocket science. It's not that hard because of my background of coming <laughs> yeah, from Huntsville and seeing rocket that science. It's not that hard. Yeah, that's hilarious. All right, so you you go through school. Um, what what did your parents do? So my dad is an engineer, a software engineer. Okay. And my mom was a paralegal, and now she works at a doctor's office, um, and she did a ton of volunteering, a ton of supporting us kids in the community. Um, So I feel like both between our kind of engineering and analytical-driven household, plus the community service that my parents demonstrated, those two things fueled a lot about how I see the world and how I want to spend my time and also where I feel like I'm equipped to give back, so to speak. That's really interesting. So... I would say then probably um, what your parents or what you 
saw your parents doing growing up probably uh, influenced quite a bit. Um, oh, absolutely. And also, so on both sides in terms of how my mom chose to spend her time and dedicate herself to our community, not just in the school community, but the broader community, you know, I saw her doing community service early on and I started volunteering at the library similarly, very early on using her example. And then my dad also, you know, as an engineer is very analytical. Um, you know, that was kind of our household mentality. I have two older brothers. They're also very smart, very accomplished. Um, and my dad would always kind of taught me a little bit to, to say, you know, math is so hard with this like annoying voice just to irritate me into, you know, doing my best and proving the opposite of like, no, this thing is not too hard for me. I'm going to do it. You know, so I grew up learning that I could do whatever I set my mind to. And it didn't matter that I was the youngest or it didn't matter that I was a girl. I would be able to do what I tried and wanted to do. Um, so that very, very much shaped my motivation and dedication to when I decided to do something, you know, I was going to figure out a way to do it. So you go to the University of Alabama. Is that where you, did you grow up a, a, an Alabama fan? Are you, have you always been a Crimson Tide supporter? <laughs> My household is. I don't really care that much about football other than to use it as a conversation to irritate other people who care more about it than I do. <laughs> it's a good conversation so, starter though. Yeah, absolutely. Well, especially these days, right? Um, <laughs> exactly. Especially in the last ten years or so. Um, what? Uh, why? Why Alabama? Why? Why? How'd you end up there? So that actually wasn't something that was on my radar in my plans for a long time. I was looking at majoring in biomedical engineering or possibly um, becoming pre-med and going to medical school. And I got into, you know, one university, Georgia Tech, for biomedical engineering. I actually got into the early medical school acceptance program at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, which was a big deal because they selected 10 high school seniors and basically said, if you come to UAB, you know, as long as you, you know, pass your MCAT, you've got a seat in medical school. And then I also got into the University of Alabama, which I had applied for the computer-based honors program. Now it's the research scholars program. Um, but that was a program my older brother did where they teach you programming and they teach you how to do research. Um, and so I was looking at Alabama for doing that computer research program along with communications. And I was kind of, you know, torn between I have a guaranteed seat in medical school that many people would very much like to have. That's a huge opportunity. Um, but when I thought about it, I knew I wanted to work in healthcare, but I felt like if I went to medical school and went down that traditional path, I would spend a lot of time, you know, kind of focused on me and my learning, and I wouldn't have as much time to give back as I went along. And so that's one of the factors that influenced me to go to Alabama to get my, my degree in public relations and political science, minoring in the computer-based honors program, because I felt like whatever I learn... I will be able to use that in the future. I can help along the way. I can do community service. And at the same time, you know, I got into medical school once. So if I want to do it again, I could probably, you know, find my way into that in the future. So it wasn't necessarily closing that door. It's just saying, not right now. I don't want to go down that path. And so that's what I ultimately did when going to the University of Alabama. So this is probably uh, in and amongst that time when we initially met on Twitter. Um, why, why did you sign up for Twitter originally? Do you remember? <laughs> I actually remember being in D.C. for a summer internship and 
you know, I'd heard about it a little bit. I was working in communications and I think my oldest brother at the time actually got on Twitter before me. And I thought, okay, this will be an interesting thing to, to use. And some of my early experiences on Twitter were, you know, talking to my oldest brother or talking to a couple of friends who had also joined Twitter. But at that time I ended up getting diagnosed with celiac disease. And so I put out the question and was talking about what it was like to switch to being gluten-free and having this issue and comparing it to what it was like when I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the age of 14 and the support I got online through Twitter, even from just the few people that were on Twitter back in, I think it was June of 2009, um, was just drastically different. And I... That is what opened my eyes to social media and Twitter in particular as being a really, really rich place to find support for healthcare needs. Um, And so, again, I think I joined Twitter because I was like, oh, I just want to check it out. But I started really using it personally as a result of that. And then also at that time, I was coming into my junior year of college and I started reaching out to people like Lee Azy of Mayo Clinic or Eric Hansen, who was at a, doing hospital communications at the time. And I think, you know, you and and a couple other people as well, and just asking questions about, okay, so the social media thing is here. You know, you're in working in healthcare. How are you using it? And, you know, how am I going to want to use it when I graduate and start working in healthcare? Um, and so that's really what took me from using Twitter for personal reasons to also using it for, you know, professional development and professional reasons as well. That's really cool. And I think, I don't know that anybody's using it strategically. Uh, we were, we were all on there. Uh, and, and I kid with people now, you know, somebody will say like, you know, you're an expert. And I was like, nah, you know, I don't know if I'm an expert. I was just there first. And, <laughs> you know, when we all got on. There really weren't not that many people. Um, you know, I was specifically looking at the hospital world, not healthcare, but hospitals. And so there really weren't that many uh, quote unquote, doing social media or on Twitter. You know, he had Lee, of course, and and some other people like Ed Bennett, and et cetera. And so those initial Twitter chats back then were really fascinating because it was typically the same people every week. I say the same people. There was a core group of people, I guess, every week. And uh, it was kind of like reconvening this audience and talking about something new every week. And uh, so you, you started that hashtag HCSM or healthcare social media and had a uh, Sunday night Twitter chat uh, for, gosh, several years, right? Like, how, many, how long did that go on? Nine years? Nine years, yeah. I made it a Nine year. Years. I was like, somebody else, I can't do this anymore. Like, I've run out of topics. Like, I have nothing <laughs> else to say. Um, but it, it's just fascinating to, to see those communities evolve and still see the hashtags floating around out there, right? Um, it's just, I don't know, it's just kind of a neat space. Um, and to your point... You know, it was an interesting time for somebody to then ask me, like in my personal, like in real, in my real life, right? Um, uh, I, you know, I have a friend of a friend that, you know, is dealing with this thing and like, I could just like lob it out on Twitter and have like, you know, the chief of surgery from like some hospital be like, here's my cell phone number, you know, have her call me, you know, kind of a thing. And it was just like, Holy cow. You know, I mean, that, that, that is just nuts. Like this, if you had to go through traditional channels to have that same conversation, it just, it was probably impossible. Yeah. The democratization is the, 
first thing that I was so impressed by and being able to tweet Lee Azy of Mayo Clinic and he responded to me, you know, and all these people working in healthcare who were at these very, very high level roles in their healthcare institution, clinicians as well. Um, that was just one of my favorite things about getting started. And then moderating Hixom is because it gave me the ability to ask questions of all these people from diverse backgrounds and diverse walks of life and say, okay, maybe you're not using this tool strategically yet, but I think you're going to be eventually. And like, let's, let's figure out how we want to shape it to be strategic. Um, so some of my favorite conversations were the ones that had a mix of patients and people who cared about healthcare, either, you know, on the side or working in healthcare in various roles, you know, coming together to have those conversations. And some of my favorite stories are about the connections that were made within the community over the years, including the fact that one or two people ended up getting themselves diagnosed with celiac disease once they realized that their symptoms mirrored a lot of the things that I would talk and joke about gluten-free cupcakes in my introduction. And people would say, gluten-free, what's that? And celiac disease, and what's that? And I later realized, people told me, yeah, I went and got diagnosed and I'm you know, allergic to gluten or I have celiac disease and I'm now gluten-free too because of this chat and this connection and meeting you. And so there's just like little touch points and little stories like that. Um, and of course, I found my first job because of that chat. My boss had joined Hixom and was chatting one night. And then a couple of weeks later, you know, messaged me and said, do you want to come out to Seattle? Do you want to work for a hospital system? Um, so like all these amazing personal and professional opportunities have for me come out of Twitter and, you know, being willing to converse in public, which was scary and still is scary for a lot of people. But I just, I've had so many cool personal and professional things come out of it that, you know, is worth, you know, every minute of every Sunday night, you know, for nine years that I spent doing it. Yeah, it's pretty wild. I mean, and you know, people, um, you know, try to fast forward through that and don't realize the time and effort and energy, um, you know, that you put forth certainly for nine years and, and the amount of time people have spent online cultivating these relationships. Um, so let's, let's fast forward a little bit. You mentioned Seattle, you, you, you move up to the, uh, to the Northwest from, uh, from the South, from Alabama and go to work for a healthcare system, right? Absolutely. In kind of a, <clears throat> I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but a traditional digital role, <laughs> if, if that's a thing, <laughs> I don't know, uh, but in communications, well, right, for a hospital. <laughs> yeah. I mean, now you would consider it a traditional digital role, but at the time, nobody had a job that was digital and social media. And so my boss, Melissa Tizon, basically went to bat and said, we're going to create this role for Dana if she'll take it and she can come in and figure out what we need to be doing and how we need to be doing it. And, you know, I didn't realize it at the time. Um, and I'm so glad I took, you know, her up on the opportunity. But looking back, it was just this absolute incredible opportunity to come in and to have several months to figure out, like, how do healthcare systems need to be communicating online? What can we do to reach people for, you know, education and information and awareness and services from the healthcare system? And, you know, most people, if they come in today, that digital role is so predefined or there's overlapping things with, you know, having to run specific channels um, and it's fairly limited, but I really had almost carte blanche to really figure out what we needed to be doing and to go do it. And I loved every minute of it. So after, you know, after you take the role at the hospital at Swedish up in, in Seattle, um, you spend time working in a healthcare system. Uh, you then kind of move to a, an agency role, if you will, and do some consulting and different thought leadership uh, all the while this is going on, certainly. Um, so let's let's kind of jump forward a little bit to kind of where you are now, right? Um, why don't kind of give us a back a little, little bit of history of how 
um, I guess he went down this this uh, path of creating an artificial pancreas. Yeah. So in 2013, I, so I've had type one diabetes for now 17 years as of today when we're recording this, but back in 2013, it had been a little over a decade and I was really frustrated with the medical devices available to me. Um, They're better than what I had before. Sure. But I had a continuous glucose monitor that would alarm if my blood sugar was low and I'm the world's best sleeper. So I would not hear the alarm. And despite asking the companies to make the alarms louder, different, something, anything, they always said, oh, you know, you're the only one with this problem or we're working on it. It'll be on the next release. But, you know, months, years would pass and nothing had happened. And so at that time, through Twitter, I saw a picture of somebody who figured out how to pull data off the same CGM device that I had and kind of a light bulb went off of, Ooh, you know, if he'd share his code with me, I could use that to make the louder alarm system that I've always wanted. And I kind of have built in my head. So we reached out to him and he shared his code. I was able to get my device data in real time, which was a huge, huge breakthrough. And I was able to send my CGM data to the cloud and down to my phone to make a louder alarm. And then because I did that, I was able to build a basic web page to allow my loved ones to also see my data. That wasn't like the reason I did it, but that was kind of the underpinnings for then having a smart tiered alarm system. So if I didn't wake up to an alarm and I didn't take action, it could then notify my loved ones. And so as a result of this, we just kept building and building and building and ultimately had an algorithm that could predict blood sugar into the future based on what I was eating and the insulin I was taking. And so we talked about that online. We socialized with other people who were doing cool kind of DIY, do-it-yourself stuff and diabetes as well. And so within about a year, we had met somebody who had figured out how to reverse engineer the communications with an insulin insulin pump that I was using. And we didn't know it the moment he said it, but a couple weeks later, we went, wait a second, you know, another light bulb moment. We have the ability to talk to the CGM and pull data in. We have an algorithm to process data. And now we have the ability to talk to an insulin pump directly. So if we put all those things together, you know, we could close the loop and have the computer in the middle deciding whether I need more or less insulin using the algorithm we gave it, instead of waking me up and telling me to take action, it could actually take action early enough to prevent having to wake me up and take action. And so that's how we kind of went within 12 calendar months from, you know, me having, other than my undergraduate training, no programming experience, no technical background, you know, a PR degree, to having self-built the world's first open source closed loop artificial pancreas, as we call it. And then because it had helped me so much, I was sleeping through the night, I was getting amazing outcomes. And because we'd been helped by other people, we decided we wanted to open source it, which means posting the code and information online so other people could use it. And so that's where the open APS, open source artificial pancreas system movement came from, was us wanting to share what we had learned and allowing people to contribute and build upon it and make it even better. So what does that community look like now? I mean, that, that's really where you're spending your time these days, right? Yeah, for the most part. I um, we've So we're now almost five years into this community of DIY diabetes and specifically around closed looping. And there are multiple thousands of people around the world who have done this for themselves. And there are dozens of developers working on algorithms and user interfaces and all kinds of tweaks and features add on to these systems to the point where they're very, very, very sophisticated. Um, they work really, really well. And so even though today is my, you know, 17 year mark of living with diabetes, 
I don't do much work around diabetes anymore. Um, and it's thanks to this entire community that's kind of emerged around this idea of paying it forward and helping the next person with whatever you figure out in terms of, you know, hacking your own diabetes. And it's just really, really phenomenal, both the tools we've been able to create, but also the community culture that's developed around this is not something that, you know, people want to commercialize. They want to help the next person now and not have to have us wait, you know, two, three, five years for the next hardware or software update. Um, so the community aspect of this project is absolutely phenomenal. That's really, really cool. So what? Uh, so what's next? What's next for you? Well, not directly as a result of OpenAPS, but because this is kind of where all my interests come together in terms of healthcare and how we can make it better. And now I have this technical expertise in the specific community where I've learned a lot together with. Um, I've kind of moved into an independent research role where I've been fortunate enough to have a couple of grants to fund my time to study communities like this, not just specific to open APS and diabetes, but looking at, you know, why did open APS get to the point where it is in this broader diabetes community? How can we take lessons learned from this community and help other people maybe with cystic fibrosis or cancer or, you know, you name it, there's you know, hundreds, if not thousands of other patient healthcare communities who are probably also innovating and coming up with their own solutions. So how do we help them also partner with academic researchers or partner with companies to scale their solution or give them their own pathway to, you know, have an open source movement and scale their own thing. Um, so that's really where we're going is just trying to figure out how to help more communities do more of the good stuff, which doesn't always mean doing it alone in the community, but it often means developing these partnerships and these collaborations, again, with traditional researchers or with companies or with other innovators who maybe don't have the direct patient exp expertise, but want to help. That's so great. She's Dana Lewis. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show for a few minutes today. Loved uh, hearing about your background and uh, what you're doing today. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in and listening to this episode of How I Got Here. How I Got Here is powered by Touchpoint Media Network. To learn more about this show and others like it, visit us online at touchpoint.health. Till next time, I'm your host, Reed Smith.